Well, good morning. It is good. Good morning. Thank you. Good. All right. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this to the churches of Galatia and also to us. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Would you pray with me again briefly? Father, we ask now that you'd open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. There have been a, uh, a couple occasions when Camille and I have taken the family uh, to the Grand Canyon. Have, have any of you been to the Grand Canyon before? Yeah, so some, some. <laughs> uh, if, if you have been there, you know that it's, it's a very safe place to go as long as you obey the rules. And almost, it's like it's too safe at the easiest access points to the rim, the, the places next to the parking lot where, where those who aren't going to go on much of a trek, that's, that's where they can admire the beauty, they can, they can snap the pictures, that sort of thing. And I say there's almost too much safety there because there's guardrails everywhere and there are signs all over the place warning you of the imminent death that awaits you if you like mess with the, the guardrails and you get too close and all of that. Warnings everywhere. And then there is my wife as well. And, and, and they say that because even as we're driving up, we haven't even gotten out of the car yet. We're, we're in the parking lot. The warnings began to the kids. Don't get too close. Hold on to your dad's hand. Don't, don't touch the railing. Those sorts of things. It was just a litany of warnings. And I want to assure you that, that the chances of one of my kids getting close enough to the ledge to do something stupid and hurl themselves over, they were less than zero. There was no chance that anything bad was going to happen. There was absolutely no chance that my wife was going to let the kids anywhere near the railing, much less touch it, much less go over the side. And she's not omnipotent, right? Uh, this, <laughs> uh, she, for my kids, she's almost omnipotent, right? She's almost omnipotent. No, she's not omnipotent. But her, her warnings were very real, and they were sincere. And they were one of the means by which our kids were going to enjoy the Grand Canyon and live to tell about it, right? They weren't the only means. They weren't the only means that was going to keep them safe, but they were one of the means by which they were to remain safe. In fact, there were absolutely certain means in addition to the warnings that guaranteed their safety, namely the iron vice grip that she had on their hands as we got close there. In our passage this morning, Paul issues a series of warnings to the Galatians, telling them that if they embrace circumcision, 
That is, if they embrace the law, they will lose everything, hopelessly lose everything. And just like my wife's warnings to our children at the Grand Canyon, Paul's very real warnings to the Galatians were one of the means that God was going to keep the Galatians on the path of faith. Because as we'll end up seeing towards the end, Paul had great confidence that God would keep them on the path of faith. So th- this morning, if, if you're here with us, you're, you're curious about Jesus, but maybe you've never responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. I would invite you to consider whether these warnings apply to you. And if they do, how might you respond today? For the rest of us, we we have believed the gospel. We are followers of Jesus. I would like to ask you to reflect on these very same warnings of Paul and check your own life. Check your faith. Have you been drifting into the error of the Galatians, even in small, subtle ways? And if you have, how might you respond today? All right, so we've been working through Galatians. We are two-thirds the way through the book now. We're starting chapter 5, and Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia is a warning. It's a plea. Don't abandon the gospel, but continue in the way that you started. And the way that they started was through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Apparently, there were some agitators, some some Jewish people who were coming up from Jerusalem into the Galatian region, and we're trying to convince these Galatian Christians, Gentiles, non-Jews, that if they wanted to truly be right with God, if they wanted to be part of God's family, then they had to follow the path of all Abraham's true children, that was their claim, the children by blood, that is the Jews, and accept circumcision, follow the Mosaic law. Accepting circumcision was was emblematic for for the totality of the law, as as we're going to see. But Paul argued that the law was given because of the faithlessness and sins of God's people. It was given to them to keep them and guide them and prepare them for a new and better covenant, which was inaugurated when the Messiah came. And now that Messiah had come, the new covenant had been enacted, it made absolutely no sense to go back to the law. And on top of that, it was utterly powerless to do anything good anyway. A writer and theologian named N.T. Wright uh, says this about this this whole book of of Galatians. He says, and you Galatians, the, the agitators who have been troubling you, they are wanting to drag you back into the night to get you to light those candles when the sun has risen and is pouring light all around the world. We're no longer under the rule of Torah. It belongs to the age of preparation, the strange pre-Messiah period when it seemed as though God's worldwide promises to Abraham were never going to be fulfilled. So we turn now to to chapter 5, and and what we're going to see here is, is is that Paul gives a charge And there's going to be some consequences for not accepting that charge. Paul's going to address the challengers to this charge. 
And, and, and then he's going to give the charge again, nuance it just a little differently. So if you were not paying attention when I said that, it's alliterated. I should have had it up on the screen there for you to see. So I worked hard at that. I hope you, get, you got to laugh a little bit at this. All right. Good. Thank you. All right. The, the charge is this. Be free. And, and in this case, it's free from enslavement to the law. So in verse 1, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And so, so Paul here is he's, he's arguing Christ has set us free. He set us free from sin and death, but he set us free from the law as well. Uh, remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter four that, that, that Paul called the law a guardian. It was like a babysitter, a, a, a nanny until we came of age. And that coming of age has come with Christ and we are free now. Paul said, you are you are, through faith, a true heir of Abraham, and you have come of age. So don't go back. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law when Christ, the one to whom they, the one in whom they had trusted, had set them free. And it's, his language here is stark. What we're going to find throughout these, these 15 verses is there is no subtlety at all with Paul in this. He is on blast mode. It, there's, it, it's, it's, it feels like great hyperbole. Paul, you've talked about the law a little bit, but now you're saying, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. We might think that's hyperbolic, but in Paul's estimation, it's not. He's saying, guard your freedom in Christ. I mean, Christ died to set you free from all these things, including the law. So stand firm. Galatians. Stand firm. Be vigilant. Be on the lookout. Guard your freedom. Because as, as we're going to see here, there's all sorts of challenges, and some of them even rise within us. That it's, it's like the gravitational pull of the sun that just wants to draw us back into slavish devotion to rules and regulations that dictate the, the, the terms of our relationship with God. And Paul says, don't go there. Watch out. Remember, there's something lurking in every one of us that wants to base our relationship with a holy God on our own performance. Am I doing enough? Am I holy enough? You might recall a few weeks ago, I know not, most of the ladies were on retreat. I, I, I mentioned a friend of mine who, who was who, who would go visit people in the hospital who were, were dying and they had, they had walked with Christ for years and he said it, it was, it was, it was very discouraging at times because at, at, at that moment they, 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 they kind of slipped back into this performance space wondering, oh, pastor, I, I just, I, I hope I've done enough to please the Lord. And, and it's like, how sad, how sad that is. But there's something inside of us that wants to go there. There's something inside of us that, 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 that wants to base our relationship with God upon our own performance. And, and the testimony of the Bible from start to finish is that will never, ever work. Your only hope is grace. Your only hope is mercy. And I think I said a couple of weeks ago that, that, that as long as I'm preaching here and the elders here, we are going to, to encourage you every step of your life as God gives us opportunity, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Do not go back to performance. Do not submit yourselves again to what Paul calls a yoke 
of slavery. It's crazy. It's crazy for us to want to base our relationship with God upon our performance because one, we can never do enough to merit anything before God. And two, we don't have to because as we learned in chapter four, God has adopted us into his family. We are not strangers hoping to earn something with God. We are family members co-heirs with Jesus, whom like any good father, except better because he's better than the best fathers, he lives to lavish blessing upon his children. Um, so I have, uh, I have five grandkids now, which, which I, I love. I'm, I'm watching Amy out of the corner of my eye as she's cooing at her own. I, I assume that's your grandchild over there, uh, on, on grandma duty and the, the delight in, in her eyes. Her ears are tuned, I'm sure, to the cries of her grandchild, right? My ears are tuned to the voices of my grandkids. And the rules are very simple. They get anything whenever they want, right? That's, that's just, that's how we roll. That, that's our job. My ears are tuned to hear their voice and respond. And if, if you have been adopted into God's family, which comes through faith in Christ, God's ears are tuned to hear you. He lives, as it were, to honor himself to bring glory to himself through loving you. So why go back? Why go back? There's something, as I said, lurking inside of us that wants to stand before God on our own merits, some kind of autonomy. We, we want to believe that we've earned it. And, and, and I think there's, that that's okay in a lot of stages and a lot of places in life. It's good to earn things. It, it's good to be self-sufficient. But when we're standing before God, we're not. We can't be. God is the self-sufficient one. There's something inside of us that just say, just, Lord, just tell me what to do and I'll do it to make myself right with you. It comes naturally for us. And in, in this sense, working for salvation is, is easier to accept, harder to accomplish, but easier to accept than receiving it as a gift because faith takes humility Working for things is good, but working for our salvation is a fool's errand, as Paul's going to make clear here. So it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What happens if you do? What are the consequences? Well, Paul's very stark here. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Look at verse 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Did I mention that Paul's on blast mode here? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is a very real warning, and it comes with very real consequences. Paul pulls out the big gun, his own apostolic authority. 
Paul was willing to do that occasionally, pull out that apostolic trump card. Look, I, Paul, am an apostle. When he was writing to the church in Corinth, he said, look, I'm an apostle. If, if you don't agree with me, well, then, then you're just not spiritual, right? Because I'm Paul, dang it, right? This is kind of, that's, how, that's how he worked at times. Paul, after all, was the one who saw Jesus. He's the one who was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, it's, this is a big deal. What he's about to say is big. I, Paul, say to you, He's pulling out that apostolic trump card because what's at stake is the gospel, the very plan of God, the only plan of God to redeem the world and lift the curse on Adam and all of his children. And there's no middle ground here. There's no middle ground. It's a simple if-then warning. If you put your hand on the hot stove, then you will be burned. If you stay out past curfew, then you will be grounded. It's your choice. Your choice. If you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage. So let's break this down. What's what's circumcision? Well, it's a medical procedure. It's the removal of foreskin from males, usually while infants. Okay, that's medically what it is. What is it biblically, theologically? Well, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It, It was a physical sign that they were part of Abraham's family which meant they were part of the Abrahamic covenant. They carried it with them wherever they went. And it was on the reproductive organ, I think, to, 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 it was like this reminder that God was going to bless the family with many, many kids. Remember, though, that Paul early reminded the Galatians in chapter 2 that Abraham received the promises before circumcision was commanded. And so he didn't do circumcision in order to receive the promises. He he accepted circumcision because God had already made the promises. Being part of the promise was not dependent on being circumcised, right? Well, that's later encoded into the Mosaic law, circumcision was. And you could really not say that you were keeping the Mosaic law if you refused circumcision. And so when Paul to the Galatians says, if you accept circumcision, he's basically saying, if you go back to the law, if you try to obey the law, if, if, if you think that is what's going to make you right before God, right? then, well, well good luck with that. So circumcision here in our text is functioning like a figure of speech for the whole law. It's not, hey, just accept, accept this medical procedure and all will be right. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. It was, if you want to follow, follow the Jewish Messiah, the troublers were saying, then you have to follow the Jewish law, all of it. And the first place it started is circumcision. And Paul says, hey, you accept circumcision, then you get the whole law. The whole thing. And that brings us to the consequences of ignoring the warning. Consequence one, if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law. You, you can't pick and choose what you're going to obey from the law. James made that very clear, right? He said, hey, you can obey the whole law, but if you murder someone, then you are a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter if you've kept the other nine laws. Or, or, or maybe you're not a murderer, but maybe you're someone who covets. Well, you're still a lawbreaker. You you cannot pick and choose. You can't obey one part of the law, disobey others, and think you're keeping the law. 
and, and, and we need to know God doesn't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing with him. So you can't stand on the straddle the fence. If you want to, if you want to walk the path of my relationship with God ultimately depends upon my performance, my ability to be holy. Well, okay. That's fine. But God says there's no waffling. You can do that if you want, but remember, God is fair and just. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans about this idea of, of like earning your salvation. He said, God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. So we say, wow, so is it possible then that the people could do good and be saved? And I suppose theoretically it could, but then if you read the rest of Romans 2 and 3, heck, the whole Bible, what you find out is this, no one does good. No one is able to do this. Theoretically, I suppose it's possible, but no one can actually do it. And, and maybe you're sitting here going, well, I'm going to start now. You know, it's too late. It's too late because you probably sinned on your way to church this morning. I, I'm not, I, I, I think I did, and I didn't even have my family in my car. I was by myself listening to what I wanted to listen to, driving in my pace, right? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. But, as Paul said, if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. Consequence number one. Consequence number two, you'll be severed from Christ and grace. Paul's warning here is not subtle at all. He's, he's talking about circumcision. So he says, you're going to accept that kind of cut? Well, you're going to be cut off from Jesus if you do. If you want to go the way of performing, of performing your way into reconciliation with God, then know that you have severed your tie to Christ. It's kind of like you're on a, you're being towed to safety and you say, I think I can swim the rest of the way and you cut the line and the boat disappears and now you're left to swim on your own. You have been severed from Christ. Jesus will not be your plan B. You cannot keep him in your back pocket. If you decide to go to God on the basis of your own performance, you've made your choice, and Paul says you're severed from Christ and grace. It's not an option anymore. Consequence number three, as if that weren't enough, <laughs> it's like the old commercials, but wait, there's more. Right? Consequence number three, you will be separated from the spirit, hope, and ultimately ultimate righteousness. That is our justification. See, with faith, with faith, we await final justification. We've been talking in just, about justification here. Justification is a term. It's borrowed from the courtroom. To be justified by God is to be declared righteous before God the judge. It's a declaration, again, of righteousness. 
And justification is not a, well, this is where you are right now, but we'll wait and see kind of judgment. Your justification is when you have been justified, you have received your end times verdict in advance. Because justification properly belongs at the last day, at the great throne of God when everyone's going to be judged. And that would be a very nervous time. But for the Christian, for those who believe, you it's, it's like you've got the cheat code, right? You've got the answer key, except you've got the verdict. You need not fear it because Paul says you have been justified. You know what the verdict is. It's righteous. Righteous. Not because you actually are righteous at that moment, but because you have placed your life in the hands of Jesus and he goes before you. He is your righteousness. And then God, in kindness, begins this process of sanctification, which will culminate in your glorification, your transformation into total Christ-likeness to the point where you'll actually become what God has declared you to be. Does that make sense? But, but, but that's in the future. But right now, you know the verdict. You know the verdict right now. And, and Paul says that if you accept circumcision, you have given up on your hope of righteousness. You've given up on your hope of justification. If you choose to go the way of the law, then you've chosen to go that route alone with no grace and no spirit. You cannot straddle and walk two paths. You either walk with the spirit or you walk alone. You either walk the path of grace and gospel or you walk the path of works. And that's a horrible path. If you're here, (laughs) you're wondering, Good grief, I just walked in off the street here. I was hoping to learn some life hacks or something, right? And here you are talking about judgment and before the great throne of God. I would just say this, you are here by divine appointment to to hear this warning right now. You don't have to face God based upon your ability to be good. You can stand before God as accepted son or daughter, loved, saved, forgiven, justified, if you'll repent and believe the gospel. And the gospel message is very simple. Christ did for us what we cannot do on our own. And he took upon himself the penalty for our sin to where God can forgive us without compromising any of his justice, any of his righteousness, It is a robust forgiveness that is offered to us because Christ suffered for us. God took care of the problem that we have with him and that he has with us. If you want to talk more about that after the service, I would be more than happy to do that. Consequence number four, circumcision and uncircumcision are meaningless anyway. So it's just kind of a fool's errand. Paul ends by delivering his own verdict here. Circumcision doesn't count for anything. But notice he says uncircumcision doesn't either. Only faith that works through love. And so there's, there's a different kind of warning to the Galatians here. As, as, as we'll see, Paul has absolutely no patience with those who believed the, the, the uh, troublers 
who thought that you needed to be circumcised. He, he had nothing good to say about them. But he also says that uncircumcision is nothing to boast in either. The Judaizers, the troublers, were wrong to revel in their circumcision. But to you Gentiles, you dare not revel in your lack of circumcision also. Neither counts for anything. Only faith working through love. To think that circumcision merits anything before God's wrong, but to think that boasting in your freedom, well, I'm not circumcised. Oh, you of little faith. Well, that merits nothing before God either. More on that in a moment. Paul says, though, to the challengers here, well, here's what he says to Galatians as he addresses those who were challenging them. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. There's a lot of cutting going on in this biblical passage here. Paul switches gears here and he addresses the issue of the false teachers and his use of the verbs ironic. It, it literally reads, you were running well, who cut in on you? Paul's love and confidence in the Galatian Christians is going to be very clear here as is his utter disdain for the false teachers. His tone is actually a bit more pastoral and it's encouraging now. You were running so well. What happened? Those people who came up from Jerusalem, they might be persuasive to you, but know this, they are not from God. Don't listen to them. And apparently some of the false teachers claimed that Paul was actually teaching the same thing that they were. They had to be circumcised to be right with God. You had to obey the Jewish law in order to be a a true child of Abraham. And Paul points out, no, I've, I've never said that. Not once. I've never preached that Gentile Christians ought to be circumcised. And, and, and the proof of that is the long list of troubles that Paul had gotten into with Jews and Gentiles everywhere. Paul was persona non grata in the Jewish world precisely because he refused to budge on the issue of circumcision. Now, now Paul had already said that circumcision and uncircumcision, they count for nothing. And Paul was very consistent on this. For Paul, Jewish people, you're free to be circumcised. It's a nice cultural marker. And, and for me as a Christian, this is pretending I'm Paul, Paul would say, for, for me as a Christian, a Jewish Christian, there's probably some advantage to being circumcised because then I, I can talk with Jewish people freely. And, and so uh, the, the Jewish person, Timothy, he had circumcised. Timothy was half Jew, Jewish. And so he asked that Timothy be circumcised to go on mission with him because he thought it would be a stumbling block to the gospel if here's this uncircumcised Jew with him. But he also had lots of Gentiles with him, and he never asked them to be circumcised. As we saw in Galatians chapter 2, Titus was with him, full Gentile, never once asked him to be circumcised. He wasn't. So Paul's, Paul's very, very consistent on this. And so he says, he, he warns them, he warns the Galatians, be careful of false teaching. I mean, Paul was willing to be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. 
but he had no patience for false teachers. And in this, he joins a long biblical tradition of strict condemnation of false teachers and false prophets. We too, we should have no patience with false teachers. Those who peddle a different religion, a different path to salvation other than grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. And one of the tasks of, of the elders is to protect the church. And, and we will, by God's grace, do this. But notice that the warnings don't go to the elders. They go to the church of Galatia. Paul didn't confine his instruction on the false teaching of the Judaizers to the elders. He held the entire church, all the churches of Galatia, responsible for their dalliance with the Judaizers. He addressed the church because churches are ultimately responsible for doctrine. So, so GBC, no, we will, we will train you up. We will teach and preach the whole counsel of God. But it's up to you as well, right? Now, not every teaching that we disagree with as, as a church and as elders is equally dangerous. And it, so know this, that we're going to take a very hard line on false teaching that undercuts the gospel. Those are what I would call doctrines to die for. There are some doctrines that Christians true Christians divide over. And, and we have a few of those, our view on baptism, for example. And, and, and we'll teach baptism while saying that you have to be a believer, a believer in order to be baptized. And, and, and we will say that those churches that baptize infants, that they're wrong on this, but that doesn't make them a false church. It doesn't make them not brothers or sisters in Christ. They're just wrong about this. Okay, And one day they'll figure that out. Right? And then there are other teachings in Scripture that, 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 that we'll debate about. And we might even divide over in here, right? Um, like maybe your eschatology, timing and nature of the, of the, uh, the, the millennium, that sort of thing. We're, we're not going to divide over that here. And then there are some churches that, that, that I'm sorry, there's some doctrines that, that we'll just let you decide, all right? Um, I don't even really care about them that much. Like, what happens to my clothes during the rapture or so, something like that, right? I don't, I, 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 right now I don't care. Maybe I will one day, but um, anyway. So, so, so Paul says to them, to, to, the, to the Christians, stay on the path. Paul's pastoral tone here is amazing. The same person who had earlier said, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning to another gospel. He says, who has bewitched you? Now he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Paul knew that the Galatian Christians would stay the course. Why the sharp tone earlier? Why the, who has bewitched you? Because Paul's warnings, I think, were just what the Galatians needed to stay the course. Just like my wife's warnings to our children at the Grand Canyon were part of what it took to keep them safe. And so my words to GBC are the same. We will teach you the full counsel of God. We will warn and correct and encourage where the Bible does and where we see it necessary. But, I mean, I've only been here a short time, and I'm getting to know you. But I have already seen your faith, and I have seen your love poured out 
on this church and to those outside the church. And I have just as much confidence in you as Paul had in the Galatians. You will persevere. You will. So Paul says again here at the end, be free, but not just free from the law, but ironically, be free to serve. You are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul returns to how he began. You're free. But a twist. At the beginning of the chapter was, you're free. Don't be enslaved to the law. He concludes this section with, be free. Free to serve one another in love. Same instruction, too. In your freedom in Christ, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is that that gravitational pull that comes from being a fallen person in a broken world full of other broken and fallen people. It's that appetite for sin that enslaves all humans until they come to Christ. But even for Christians, the flesh pulls on us towards sin. And he repeatedly warns, Make no provision for the flesh. The flesh drives us towards license. But as the book of Galatians makes clear, the flesh also drives us toward legalism. You see, the flesh is not just a drive towards disgusting and vile sins. It can also pull us towards subtle and even respectable sins like pride, envy, comparison, judging others, gossiping. All of these things can be done with a spiritual veneer, almost like a humble brag. I mean, imagine I got up here and said, guys, I want you to pray for me. I've just been struggling with pride. I want you to pray for me. I've, uh, I only spent three hours in prayer yesterday, and I'm just feeling bad. It wasn't four right? I, I'm, so, so I'm, I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Because uh, there's no way I only spent three hours in prayer. Of course it was four. No, no, I, right? I, that's, that's like a humble brag. It, it's, it's virtue signaling, but that, that's from the flesh as well, right? That's from the flesh as well. So he, he, warning against license. License is living as though there is no right or wrong, or maybe, maybe it could be this, for the Christian, I know there's a right, I know there's wrong, but since I'm a Christian, I'm going to be forgiven. So you effectively live as though you've been given permission to engage in behaviors and activities that are offensive to the Lord and sinful, because it's, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, right? If you've ever done anything that you know to be wrong, but you justify it with, well, Christ died for me, so it's okay. You're engaging in license, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. You're using your freedom in Christ to gratify the flesh. But this whole book has been a warning against legalism. Legalism is creating a law that God never gave and believing that my relationship with God is based upon my ability to obey that made-up law. And it, 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 it can be really subtle. For example, something like this. We know that adultery is wrong. It's, it's the uh, seventh commandment, Right? And, and it's repeated all through the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus actually takes it down to the heart and says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with 
her in your heart. And, and, and so maybe you have a hard time maintaining purity of mind whenever you go to the local swimming pool or something like that. So, so you create a rule for yourself. I'm not going to the swimming pool. And, and maybe that was wise for you, but, but where legalism rare, rears its ugly head is then when you hear of other Christians going to the pool to swim and you judge them because they are adulterous. They are uh, shameless. And, and you judge them for that. They're not as righteous as you because they went to a swimming pool. There's no rule against going to swimming pool, but there's a rule that you made up, but now you are asking them to live up to your own standard when God never gave that rule. It's okay to tell someone you should not commit adultery. That's clear. But your wisdom rules? Eh, not so much. Not so much. Both license and legalism, they come from the flesh. And it pulls, as I said earlier, with the gravitational power of the sun. So be careful. Delight in your freedom in Christ, but don't use it to feed the flesh. Rather, as Paul says, and this is where we'll conclude, use your freedom to serve in love. Love one another. We've been set free from the minutia of the Mosaic law so that we can faithfully do the essence of the Mosaic law, which is love one another. Very wise theologian from the past said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Next sentence, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Where did he get that from? From Jesus. Night Jesus was betrayed. He's just got a short time with his disciples. And I don't know what it was like to be a follower, uh, to be one of his disciples, but I often wonder about that because as I think I've told other, maybe in the class, whenever I read the gospels, I put myself in the place of, of, of the disciples, right? What would it have been like to be with Jesus? And so if I'm there in the upper room and if things are tense, Jesus knows he's only got a few hours before everything's going to come crashing down. So he's got, he's got to deliver some good stuff. And, 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 and if, if I would have been there, I would think, well, Jesus, things are going up. Uh, you're hanging on every word. And so he says, at the very beginning of the, the Last Supper, he says, a new commandment I give you. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, whoa, this is going to be good, right? We've been following this guy for three years now, and now he's given us a new command. I wonder what it's going to be. And then he says, what did he say? A new commandment I give you. Love one another. I would have been like, what? I've been following you for three years. You say that every single day. How is this a new commandment? A new commandment I give you, love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how important it was. And maybe Jesus is looking at these brain-dead disciples and he goes, hey, I, I got to get your attention. So I'm going to tell you it's a new commandment, but it might as well be a new commandment because you still don't get it. Love one another. Love one another. The one another here, it's not really a command to love everybody. It's to love the disciples to love each other for GBC, to love one another is for us to love each other here. Paul warns, careful not to use your freedom to hurt one another. And in our case here, be extra careful not to hurt our brothers and sisters here at GBC. We're a family here, and though blood is thicker than water, maybe because blood is thicker than water, 
the wounds of a family member, they seem to hurt twice as much. But reconciliation between family members is also twice as sweet. So be on your guard. Be quick to sacrifice your pride for the sake of others here. If there's friction between you and another, race that person to reconcile first. Be quick to apologize for anything that you possibly can. Be quick to sacrifice your time for the sake of others. Because Paul says the litmus test for our Christian authenticity is our love for one another. The world is not going to be impressed with our awesome theology if it does not see us love each other. And that will spill over into love for others. I'm not denying that we are not to love outside the church. But it's interesting. There's two times in the Bible where Jesus talks about how the world's going to know the truth of Jesus' claims. And it all has to do, one, how we love each other here. And are we unified? Those are the two tests that Jesus said, if we do those two things, then the world will know that God the Father sent Jesus. And the world will know that we truly are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The strongest proof that we can give to Gresham and East County is our love for one another. So GBC, may our love for the Lord Jesus Christ pour out in our acts of love for each other. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for these warnings. And we pray, Father, that we would take them seriously because they are serious warnings. We're, we're grateful, though, that you keep us. You keep us faithful. You give us the Spirit. You, you, you give us all manner of things, including the warnings, to keep us on the path of following you. And we do thank you that you keep us. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you that we can get off the hopeless treadmill of, of trying to earn merit before you. We're grateful that we are part of your family who are loved. We're grateful that your ears are tuned to hear our praise. Your ears are tuned to hear our requests and our cries. We are grateful. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.